This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. I just want to start with a really quick note that today's show is going to contain discussions about eating disorders, about body image problems and disordered eating. And if that's something that impacts you, the Butterfly Foundation can be contacted on 1300 334 673. And when I do say eating disorder to you, if I ask you to imagine someone who's experiencing body image issues or, or is living with disordered eating, what comes to mind? I'm willing to bet that you are not imagining someone who identifies as male. You might even believe that's not something that can happen to men. It's a problem that's exclusively for women. Well, the NEDC, National Eating Disorders Collaboration, they estimate that fully one-third of people who are reporting eating disorder behaviours in the community are male. And if that sounds like a lot, it's because it is a lot. And in fact, that number could be a lot higher. There's a real concern that men are going undiagnosed, being misdiagnosed, or just not coming forward because of the shame and stigma that can be attached to it. My name's Nick Healy. It is my very last day filling in for Rochelle Hunt. And men living with eating disorders, men with body image issues, men experiencing disordered eating, it can be a really hard topic to broach. And you and I are going to do that today. But before we do, I want to be really clear that this is not a what about the men conversation. I in no way want this to diminish or take away from the experiences that women have when it comes to living with eating disorders or from the societal pressures that unduly impact on people who identify as women. They are all very real and very, very problematic. But I do want to take an hour today and look at the experiences of men who are living with eating disorders or disordered eating. So I want to maybe bust a few of the misconceptions when it comes to men and body image and even ask how society can better support men so that they feel like they can come forward and ask for help. As I said, this is a really difficult topic. If you would like to talk about your own experiences, I would love to hear from you. I really think the more men who can open up about this, the better. And of course, you can absolutely remain anonymous if that's more comfortable for you. But I also want your thoughts on what we can do to find the right role models and images for young men to make it easier for them to open up about topics like this. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. So when it comes to men and issues like body dissatisfaction, eating disorders and more, is there a big difference between what they will experience compared to women? Now, Danny Rollins is the head of prevention at the Butterfly Foundation. Danny, I know some people might even be really surprised to learn that men can experience eating disorders and things like we're talking about today. It sometimes feels like something that has just flown under the radar for so long. Look, Nick, hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a conversation that we've yet to have in its full entirety and I think like anything, we need to be bringing the awareness to the issue. I know we've been working really hard to do that with eating disorders more broadly, but when it comes to men, we've got a lot of work to do to really um, unpack and uncover and, and make it really something that, that men feel and boys feel that they can talk about. Is it something that they are going to experience in a different way to women in the community will experience? So I think when we when we think about eating disorders, um, you know, the risk and protective factors they they exist and it's you know in the same for men, for men and women. Of course, every individual case is an individual case, and so how someone does develop something like an eating disorder is going to be unique uh, to them. When it look when we look at body dissatisfaction, though, what we see typically, and again, we need to be really general with this because 
Mm. Not everybody sits in, into a very um, clean box when it comes to gender or even just the relationship they have with their body. Um, but typically we're seeing the pursuit of muscularity being a real driver for males and men, uh, but also leanness. So we know that um, obviously low body fat and obviously the desire to have a lower weight is actually now something that is absolutely um, something that boys and men strive for. And I guess with females, we typically see uh, the pursuit of, of thinness um, as, a, as a real driver and a motivator um, and obviously a reason around body dissatisfaction. So there are some differences, but I don't think it's as clear cut as we possibly think it, think it is. Um, and I guess that's an important thing to discuss as well is that it can look different for every person. So we can't just assume that someone's going to present a certain way based on their gender. No, and, and well, you know, we don't want it to exclude men from being recognised, but we can't say, That's well, right. all men are going to experience it in this way and this way That's alone. Right. I know we really worry that there's an under-reporting of, of men's eating disorders. Yeah. And is that just down to, to a certain level of stigma about talking about this or is there more to that? I think stigma is an absolutely massive factor, particularly for, for males, as you described in your introduction, is that when we... Th- we typically think of an eating disorder, we, we typically think of probably, you know, a female um, and a very, um, you know, a, a very obviously medically unwell female when it comes to eating disorders. And I guess that's a big challenge, um, just the, the attachment to um, the female body. Mm. But I guess with males, we also, um, yeah, it's, I guess the, the stereotype around what they typically look like and that stigma really exists. Eating disorders are coming up when it comes to actually people just generally in the community understanding. We still know that the broad understanding of eating disorders in our our community is really low. People don't get it still um, and that exists for anyone who's experiencing an eating disorder. So we've got a lot of work to do but when it comes to to men we really are just seeing that underreporting and a misdiagnosis or even just simply behaviours being missed because for men, it's something that might typically be celebrated or seen as actually a really positive um, behaviour. So we do have a lot of work to do to, to make sure we're, we're seeing these accurately and, and really not missing uh, boys and men so that they actually can come forward and say, hey, this is a problem for me. Danielle, I want to get back to that sort of societal implications of, hey, yep. you look great or, you know, what are you doing, keep yep. it up kind of attitude. Yep. But it, I, is there a concern about misdiagnosis? Because my understanding is that even on a professional community level, this is still something where we're struggling to get our heads around. Yeah, and I think particularly for men, and, and I use this example all the time, I worked in the fitness industry, industry for many years, and behaviours that would be exhibited by females who were working out or training and eat, you know, around eating, where there was restriction or if there was overtraining, it would be seen as an, a red flag and it would be seen as problematic. Unfortunately, when we look at... at males and the behaviours that they engage in. We have a very high and an over-celebration of sporting pursuits and and just muscularity attached to male bodies is that the behaviour that, that many men would engage in would often be seen as something that should be celebrated. So we're, we're just missing the fact that something that can become all-consuming can distract somebody from their life such as overtraining, restrictive eating, all of these things can actually, or binge eating, can actually really impact a person's a person's life. So, um, it's a really complex a complex issue, and and how we get around 
you know, this over-celebration of, mm. of that male body and physique is a really, a really tricky one. I think what really intrigues me, though, is, you know, we're often told that when we're talking about eating disorders, you know, your GP is that great first point of call. It is in Australia for so many yep. of the, the mental health things we might be experiencing. But I yep. know a lot of GPs are like, well, you know, you're a bloke, you look fit, you're fine. I think it comes down to, again, just that um, we need to upskill the workforce mm. in particular. Um, and that's across, that's across a lot, like GPs and across a lot of health professionals and making sure that we're actually identifying problematic behaviours and attitudes when it comes to, to food, um, eating and, and obviously exercise. We also know that eating, pre- eating disorders present alongside with other mental illnesses and other issues such as depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, addictions. Um, so we need to make sure that we're looking at this as a really complex um, thing and not just taking obviously a person's body size as the decider of whether or not they're experiencing an eating disorder or not. Well, exactly. There's a huge level of complexity to it. It doesn't exist in isolation. In terms of the work being done into research, is is a lot happening? I mean, are we seeing more and more, um, I I guess, of the professional community pushing into understanding this? Look, the good news is is that over particularly the past 10 years, there has been an increase in in male representation in eating disorder research and also body image research. Um, so that's that's a positive. We're also seeing more research done um, in more minority groups such as LGBTQI plus communities, mm. um, which is a really uh, important piece of work that needs to be done because, again, there's another layer of complexity um, there as well. But we are seeing... Um, the better inclusion, which is positive, but we just, again, need to have more research done. But also we need the opportunity for men and boys to come forward and have the opportunity to talk about the experiences that they're having with their body from right down to that, you know, that early early body image perspective right through um, to where more serious issues like eating disorders are, are being experienced. Because that feels like it's got so many layers to be changed before yeah. men can feel like doing that because it's not just about recognising that, that a man can stand up and say, look, I think I've got a problem with eating, I've got a problem with body image, but even yeah. the idea that men still to this day don't feel comfortable discussing any aspect of that mental health. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are positives and again, you know, there are some men who are really leading the way in, in being open about how they're feeling about their mental health or and obviously part of that is their body image. Often we see body image as a separate thing to mental health, mm. but it actually sits sits within. So, you know, we, we do have to celebrate those um, men and we're seeing even more in, um, in, in sporting arenas where there's, you know, role models coming out and saying, hey, I've, I've been struggling. So that's a, a really a positive thing but we absolutely we've got it needs to happen everywhere and it needs to happen at every level so we need to not just see these people on television we need to see it happening in in homes in classrooms on in different tv programs we need to see it happening um everywhere so it becomes normalized and something that is um not seen as so taboo uh, to talk about how someone's feeling or or their struggles. But Danny, does that make a difference when someone who is a, a kind of known quantity, a high profile individual, is willing to open up about this? Does that make a difference? I think it absolutely helps. I think how someone perceives that information is going to be unique to them. But I think what it does is it offers the opportunity for people to have a conversation. And sometimes it's even just to ask questions or, and often it might be, oh gosh, I didn't realise that they would have struggled or that's, you know, that's really interesting that that's been experienced. And it does does allow and invite an opportunity to talk about the topic. And then when we start talking about the topic and then someone shares a vulnerability or someone shares something that they're feeling or experiencing it makes it safe and okay for others 
to do the same. Um, and we see that typically in smaller groups um, of either boys or men. It's harder to do in large group settings to really disclose how you're feeling. But just having that opportunity to think about mm. something a bit differently or see something a bit differently is a really powerful tool. Danny, thank you so much for your insight on that. Danny Rollins is the Head of Prevention at the Butterfly Foundation. A couple of texts that have come through. Uh, my brother had an eating disorder which lasted for years. This was back in the 80s. It was almost unheard of at the time. And another text that's anonymous saying, we recently had an 11-year-old boy admitted where I work with an eating disorder. Um, it is a um, multifactorial problem. This is The Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. My name's Nick Healy. We're talking about men and eating disorders, disordered eating, body image problems this morning. You just heard from Danny Rollins from Butterfly Foundation. She mentioned what a difference it can make when people, high-profile individuals, can step up and have a conversation about their own experiences. Brock McLean is a very well-known name from the footy field. He's a key player for the Demons and the Blues in his time. And since stepping back from the game, he's been a very powerful advocate for better recognition of the impact that eating disorders can have on men. And Brock, good morning, mate. How are you? Good morning, Nick. Thanks for having me. I'm well, thank you. This is such an important conversation to have. I wanted to get a sense of, of, of how it progressed with you when you were experiencing disordered eating. Uh, yeah, so it was, um, it was in between my first and second year at, at Carlton and um, I was asked by the coaching group that I'd, uh, to lose a few more kilos um, they thought it would help with uh, with my leg speed. I'd, I'd suffered quite a few injuries prior to that, and I'd slowed down a little bit. So they thought it'd be um, it'd be beneficial to me to lose some weight. But the problem was, I was already running pretty lean anyway. I was already already stripped sort of five kilos off my natural body weight. So I was sort of at a really um, you know right on the on the edge of what was what was healthy and what wasn't. But um, because I'd been through a real rough patch with injuries and I wasn't playing, I was pretty desperate to do anything that I possibly could to get my name. Um, you know, back in front of the coach's eyes and in, the, and in the good book. When did you understand that this was a problem? Because as you said, it started off as sort of something that was, you know, something you were doing within the team. It, you know, could have been regarded as just kind of getting yourself back out to match fit. It snowballed from there. But was there a time when you thought, oh, hang on, this has gone very badly? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're purging, you know, um, uh, when it gets to a point where you're purging after, you know, dinner every single night like that's probably the realization that yeah there's something wrong here and i you know, deep down i knew i had a lot of other sort of mental health is- issues at the time you know uh, depression and, and anxiety and, and it wasn't until sort of 2019 that i was diagnosed um with bipolar um but i didn't know at the time so i knew i had a lot of issues but uh you know i heard you touch on before about um you know this toxic masculine mindset of how it's somehow emasculating to talk about our feelings or to talk about our problems or to admit um, that we're struggling. You know, I was the carbon copy um, of that and growing up in a very blue-collar family, you know, mental health was something that was just dismissed and we saw as a sign um, of weakness and we never discussed anything um, along those lines. Were you, where were you able to find help when you started reaching out? Where, where did you go? Oh, look, I finally started speaking to a psychologist. It was around the... Uh, early 2017, um, it got to my point in my life where it was, you know, two and a half years I'd retired and after I'd retired and, um, yeah, I was just in, in a really bad space from a from a mental health perspective but the, the behaviours that I was exhibiting were just becoming more frequent and, and worse and worse and that was drinking and drug use and so I reached out to the AFL Players Association um, who offer free um, psychological services 
for all past players, um, and they put me onto the, my psychologist, and I, um, you know, I started seeing him on a weekly basis. And was he able to recognise it very early as being around your experience of an eating disorder, or did that take a while to kind of rear its head? Uh, look, it really took me a while. Like at first, I was very apprehensive um, about opening up. You know, there was obviously the barrier between someone that I just met. You know, and I never felt comfortable talking to, you know, my closest mates or, you know, my, my family members. So there was obviously that barrier. So it took a little bit of time for me to, you know, really open up and, and be and be honest and admit to how I was feeling and the struggles that I was going through but just because of the, the shame um, that was attached to that and, um, you know, re- reliving some of these uh, traumatic memories and traumatic experiences was... Um, was, uh, was really hard to deal with at first. Look, shame of being unwell, shame of having to talk about mental health, but I imagine also just as long as we don't recognise this as something that necessarily affects men, there's even a, I don't know, feeling a bit emasculated almost. Yeah, well, I guess our, our, probably our, our observations, like over time, you know, lead us to form of uh, our beliefs. And, mm. you know, when you when you hear of an eating disorder, when you see of an eating disorder, you, you naturally think... Uh, it's a, a, a woman's condition because of, of what we've seen um, over time. So as you pointed out, you know, that feeling of emasculation, thinking, well, if I admit to something, you know, it means I'm, you know, somehow uh, not a man. But, um, yeah, it, it couldn't be further from the case because it's not a women's condition or it's not a men's condition. It's a human It is very much a human condition. And, and Brock, I was just going to ask, like, when you were actually still playing, I imagine this kind of could easily fly under the radar because you just would have looked like you were paying attention to your fitness. I imagine, you know, teammates were almost congratulating you on how you were doing. Yeah, well, I mean, you're doing skin folds tests once a month. You're doing DEXA scans uh, once every three months. You're finding out, you know, how much body fat um, you've got on you. And, you know, sort of at the peak of my eating disorder, I think I was at something like four and a half percent. Um, body fat and you know that was you know sort of celebrated you know in an industry like that because you're an, you're an elite athlete and that generally correlates to performance with you know with body type and muscle mass and all those types of things um, so and in the coach's eyes I was seen to be doing the right thing because I was you know watching what I was eating and I was doing everything that was asked of me um, so from a physical standpoint I look great but from a mental uh, mental health capacity yeah, I was uh, I was really struggling. Brock, what's been your experience since you were able to come out and talk about this? What, what have you been seeing and hearing? Oh, look, I mean, it's you, you hear of you do get some good feedback, um, you know, from from time to time of people who might approach you in the street or um, Joe, who I've been talking to a little bit via text, whose daughters who's suffering from anorexia nervosa. You know, we we go back and forth with. Um, you know, experiences and, and our ideas around, um, you know, uh, some of the research that's going on and the potential research that's out there. So it certainly has been a bit of a conversation starter, but I still don't think we're anywhere near the level um, as a society in terms of where we need to get to um, in terms of the conversation, in terms of people uh, getting out there and seeking help and in terms of our support and funding, um, you know, from state and federal governments. There's still plenty of changes yet to come. I think Brock McLean, thank you so much for your time. Brock's a former AFL player talking about his own lived experiences with eating disorders. On the line, we've got Richard from Hampton. Richard, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. What did you want to add to the conversation? Um, I I was really interested in... I really enjoyed listening to Brock then. Mm. Um, one of the things that strikes me most is that we have this conversation that goes across a large, large spectrum 
which is from profound mental health challenges all the way back to a point which is wellness or feeling good about yourself. And it seems to me that we, we don't do enough work at the simple end, which is discovering what makes us feel good about ourselves, which is a primary and fundamental step towards working at your best mental health. So sometimes those things are disrupted and can be easily disrupted by a thing like an injury or some weight gain. And yet, so our sense of self and our perception of self or how we think others think about us gets heavily disrupted. Um, so what do we do to get to that point and have those conversations that say, how do we make you or how do I feel happy about myself despite this disruption and can I change that circumstance, live with that circumstance, rather than the rumination and consideration which comes next is this is not fixable and we start shifting through stages of deeper and more challenging mental health occurrences. So, Richard, you'd, you'd want to see us almost take it back to making sure that, you know, men's self-esteem, young, young men's, young community members across the board, their self-esteem is better looked after from a societal point of view. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't believe it's ageist because uh. I think that there are things that occur in all age groups. You know, decline of decline of prowess in terms of physical capability can be a trigger towards not feeling your best or it could happen at the age of 25 for a significant injury that takes you away from a, a sport or an activity or something that you truly love. So I think it's educational, yes, it starts with early life and then needs to be embedded in our, the way that we consider ourselves and what we're either you know what we like what we're good at how we see ourselves and what we're capable of as not being by degradation moments that say i don't feel comfortable with who i am our lives will continue to change we'll be challenged by moments but we're not built nor equipped educationally with the things that allow us to grasp those moments and say how can i work through this to be the best person or feel the best about myself that I can. Richard, so, that is absolutely fascinating. It's clearly something you've put a huge amount of thought into, and I really thank you for sharing that uh, this morning on the conversation. Uh, text that's in saying, I work in the education system, and it feels like no matter how much we talk about this, people really aren't understanding the signs of what to look for. That's a really interesting perspective as well, because I think we, the reason we're talking a lot about young men and younger uh, Australians is that it'd be lovely to think about this from a prevention point of view, but there's a lot more to the conversation, and I do want to hear from you. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. My name is Nick Healy. This morning we are talking about eating disorders, disordered eating, body image problems. And as I said just then, enough for a lot of this conversation, I'm talking about boys, I'm talking about young men. And I guess that's because I'm very interested in how this conversation can help prevent men finding themselves experiencing eating disorders. But I know just because it's more common in younger members of the community, that doesn't make it exclusive to them. Now, Sarah McMahon's a psychologist and author, the co-founder of Body Matters Australasia. Sarah, good morning to you. Good morning. I know this is something that can impact older generations of men as well. Absolutely. It can, and, and I think it's really important that we are talking about men. And one of the things that I'd point out when, it, when we're sort of thinking about prevention and anyone developing an eating disorder, actually, men and women, is just the danger that dieting plays in terms of setting up um, that eating disorder. So 
it's interesting, some of the research that's often referred to when it comes to eating disorders is a starvation study which was done in 19, 1945 by Ansel Keys with conscientious objectives of war, which were, of course, all males, and mm. they were starved and all developed symptoms of eating disorders just from that um, malnutrition. How intriguing. So even just sort of that more extensive dieting, which can be very, very common in certain fitness communities, that can be a major contributor. That's exactly right. So these men all had no history of prior history of psychiatric illness before they participated in the study. And so it was used, you know, it's been used now to understand the impact of starvation on the brain because, of course, we could never replicate a study like that now. But I think it is important because we do see eating disorders, unfortunately, they're stereotyped as uh, illnesses that females suffer from. But this group of people were males and they exhibited all the signs when they were starved. And I think, thankfully, um, for a lot of men, they've been, I guess, privileged enough not to have to participate in diet culture to the same extent that women have um, over the last however many decades. Mm. But I think that's kind of catching up um, in many ways now. A really intriguing text, basically saying an elderly male friend of mine has an eating disorder which has caused him to suffer from sleep deprivation. This text is saying older Australian men just won't discuss eating disorders. And again, we are, we are talking about how we bring this conversation to the fore, Sarah, um, but obviously there are going to be generational difficulties as well when it comes to discussing something like this. That's right. I think, again, that's sort of stigma. Um, and we know that one in four cases of anorexia under the age of 14 is in fact a male. So I think we have more awareness that young men are more likely to develop eating disorders. But when we're talking about older men um, and particularly things like binge eating disorder, which is the most common diagnosis across both genders and typically with binge eating disorder, um, you know, it's a hidden, it's a secretive shame-based disorder. And so uh, people often live for eight to 10 years with these symptoms and behaviours before family and friends know that the, the behaviours there and this is males and females so we think about then applying that to males who are obviously more likely to feel shame because it's so stigmatised and such a gendered illness. Do we think it's very underreported because of that stigma? Do we have any sort of insight into what those numbers might be? I think, well I mean the Butterfly Foundation did some great research of a number of years ago now that said at least a million Australians at that point in time were suffering from an eating disorder and at that point in time binge eating disorder was the most common uh, and, and still is. But I think the problem as well is when we live in a society that's very healthist, I guess, um, and very preoccupied with health and very preoccupied with weight as well. So often people are presenting to doctors with uh, and kind of classified as being overweight or having a weight problem when in actual fact they have an eating problem. And because of this idea that we think that eating disorders only affect people who are thin, um, you know, we don't see sort of necessarily people who are sitting at high body weights necessarily as having an eating disorder. And of course, people can sit at high body rates for any number of reasons. You don't need to have an eating disorder to sit at a high body weight. But I think a lot of people definitely slip through the cracks because um, they're presenting and, and, and it's considered to be a weight problem and not being adequately assessed for things like binge eating disorder. And, and Sarah, the flip side of that, of course, is while we have a health focus on the idea that um, obesity is the, you know, the epidemic we hear, that being overweight is very unhealthy, we tend to reward some of these restrictive eating behaviours or over-exercising that can lead, especially within men, to, to full-blown eating disorders or disordered eating. That's exactly right, and it strikes me that the same things which are rewarded are the, exactly the things which are diagnosed with someone with an eating disorder. And so the message seems to change about what's appropriate behaviour. If you're sitting at a higher body weight, some things are celebrated and, and they're actually 
the things that we diagnose. So for me, if I see someone who's counting all their calories, counting their footsteps, skipping meals, you know, for me, that's massive alarm bells. But I think for someone who's sitting at a high body weight, that kind of behaviour is, is actually encouraged. And so I think kind of, again, shifting the conversation away from weight to health is far more helpful. That the messaging about behaviour needs to be consistent, irrespective of what someone's weight is, because then we're going to have you know it's kind of it's very confusing for someone to think hang on nothing's changed what i'm doing is exactly the same except my weight of course changed it's very confusing particularly for young people who haven't had the benefit of time to kind of disseminate um different the fact that different pieces of information come from different places and so um they're left then really utterly confused um because their you know, their behavior hasn't changed but suddenly they've got a mental diagnosis <sighs> Sarah, I think, you know, sort of gym behaviour as well, you know, I think of supplements and, you know, uh, protein additional kind of being taken in that form and even over-bulking and then shredding down. I mean, uh, these can, uh, unchecked, go on to be very damaging. Yeah, like, and it's, it's interesting because I think that it's the same as other things like gambling or drinking, that's, that there is definitely vulnerability there. Some people are more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. So some people can dabble in this behaviour and and it's quite kind of concrete in terms of what what they're doing, where it finishes and where it sort of starts. And then for other people, it's become such a slippery slope um, and very much a breeding ground for the development of an eating disorder. But like as that, that starvation study I mentioned before, that even for people who don't have that vulnerability, it's, um, you know, as people sort of start to engage in this behaviour, Typically, they will become more and more preoccupied with food, more and more more time thinking about food. Become more their world becomes smaller and more um, focused around that, and losing interest in things like um, intimate relationships and um, other career aspirations, other things which would have been important to them in the past. Sarah, in your work, have you seen a change over the few decades when it comes to men stepping forward and having these conversations and an understanding around it? Do you think we are uh, headed in the right direction? I think we are. I think there's been some changes. Men definitely sort of standing up a bit more and saying that they think they've got a problem. And I think there's definitely been more awareness in relation to the cross-section of uh, neurodivergence and eating disorders as well and we think particularly about things like ADHD um, and in, in males and uh, the crossover between that and binge eating disorder. So I mean that's the sort of presentation that we're seeing more of um, in our practice. Um, I, th- I think um, you know it, it's there's still so much shame and I think the other thing that springs to mind for me when I'm thinking about males and eating disorders is males and mental health in general mm. that the, the profile for a male with mental health concerns that the risk profile men are far more likely to suicide and so you know what we see often is when people do present for treatment is some very complex presentations um and complex risk um because um i guess there's that kind of gender difference there as well Sarah, on that GP level, I've been very interested in having a kind of look at that and what that kind of means, you know, people presenting to a GP. But I know there is often misdiagnosis because even on that level, there's not necessarily the understanding of what this could mean to men. That's right. And, and GPs, I mean, they're, they're jack of all trades, aren't mm. they? They're amazing in terms of everything that they need to be across and are across. But but because it's kind of not an obvious, um, I mean, even even with females, actually, so often we hear of GPs missing diagnoses of eating disorders or, um, you know, and I think that eating disorders, they're just not on the radar in the way that they need to be.
Sarah McMahon, thank you so much for your time this morning. Sarah is a psychologist, director of Body Matters Australasia. Uh, look, this is a complex, heavy topic. Um, Lifeline is available on 13 11 14. And I will just keep saying that the Butterfly Foundation, if you find yourself impacted by things like eating disorders, it's 1300 334 a text in saying we need more people like Brock in the world. We spoke to Brock McLean earlier. He was talking about his lived experience with eating disorders. This text is saying what gifts he has of honesty, integrity, generosity of spirit, a delightfully intelligent and articulate man. And when he speaks about his eating disorder, when he speaks about what it was like to be experiencing it while playing sport, while embedded in that community, it's a really important insight. And not everyone is going to have the same experience on hearing more individual experiences of eating disorders to me is incredibly essential and i want to have a chat to nick mitchell nick good morning to you good morning thanks for having me nick i know you have lived with um body image issues and disordered mm-hmm. eating how did that come about for you um i think for me uh as a cisgendered gay man there was a lot of kind of pressures around what a gay man should look like um and act like and I guess I felt kind of pretty boxed in um, from those parameters and yeah that kind of spikes some pretty unhealthy uh, habits and behavior patterns and just kind of really kind of negative uh, thoughts about my myself and the way I look and the way I present myself and yeah kind of just was a bit of a bit of a downward spiral from there to be honest. I don't think we talk enough about the pressure that it can be to belong in certain communities, to, to fit in and to you know, appear the right way. It, it can be quite draining. Yeah, totally. I mean, from my experience, like uh, I spent a lot of a lot of my my young my young life not really fitting in with with a lot of the community, a lot of the world in general. And then I finally found a community, the, the queer community that, that I felt like I fit in with and that I felt like I belonged in. And then to kind of have kind of extra kind of pressures that I felt stemmed from, from being a part of that, both from within the community and from the wider public. Um, yeah, it kind of led me to be like, oh, I've, I've found this place that I belong and suddenly I feel like I don't belong there either. Um, and that was, yeah, really kind of, yeah, <laughs> really not a great, great place to be in. Um, yeah. How hard was it for you to recognise that those behaviours were, were genuinely mm. bad for you? You know, because I, I can only imagine that if you were controlling food, dieting, exercising, mm-hmm. as we keep hearing the refrain throughout this morning, that these are behaviours um, that usually get rewarded. People say, "Oh, great, you're doing something healthy, you're looking after yourself, well done." Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, completely, and that's exactly my experience as well. I think there's such a stigma around diet culture being such a positive kind of life changing for the good um, kind of kind of experience. And, and for some people that is the way, but it does also kind of, yeah, manifest in very negative kind of ways as well because you do start to make kind of changes to your life and, and that does kind of then force people to, you know, compliment you and kind of um, you see kind of differences of people's opinions of you and all that kind of thing. And, and then that does kind of, you get kind of addicted to that, to that, um, to that high, I guess mm. you'd say. Um, and it does kind of force you to kind of not really know when to stop and not really know when enough is enough because you are kind of just spiraling, I guess. And, and it does, you know, there's not really a lot of, uh, men, a lot of cisgendered men out there that are talking about, um, eating disorders and how it affects them. You know, we kind of see a very one dimensional kind of picture of someone with an eating disorder. It's, it's usually a, it's usually a cisgendered female with anorexia nervosa. We don't really see, 
kind of other other forms of eating disorders out there. So if you can't see any kind of problem that matches with what your experience is, it's really hard to identify that there's a problem there in the first place. And it just kind of, you know, it ends up being a bit of a snowball that you're trying to chase down a mountain. Well, Nick, when did you recognise it as an eating disorder for you, as a problematic behaviour? Yeah, I mean, for me, like... It was actually a lot of the lockdowns that here in Melbourne that kind of made me kind of really stop and analyse my behaviours. I think with those lockdowns, we kind of, we lost a lot of our usual kind of things, like gyms were closed, we couldn't go out as much, um, we were, you know, a lot more isolated. And I think for me, that actually, as much as it was a negative in certain ways, it actually turned into a bit of a positive because I was able to kind of really assess my, my behaviours and assess what I was doing and, and kind of recognise a lot more a lot more, yeah, things that I didn't really want to continue post-lockdowns. Post and I found organisations like Butterfly Foundation and was able to kind of really see stories that I that I recognised in myself and I could kind of hear people's experiences and go, oh, that's, that's me, like I get that now and oh, wow, there, there actually is a problem there that I need to address that I didn't even recognise was there in the first place. Yeah, Nick, it sounds like it would have been very easy for you to stay within that community if not for lockdown and stay with those behaviours. Yeah, it actually was a bit of a blessing in disguise, I guess. <laughs> you, you mentioned before, of course, being able to see you know, these people's stories and, and go, oh, my God, that is me. I mean, do we... It, it is a very hard thing to open up about. I guess, from yeah. your perspective, how do we provide a framework that lets people be more honest about this? Yeah, I, I think I think it's just about understanding that it, it's, it's a cognitive form of behaviour, you know? It's, it's the way our brain works from a you know, number of different kind of places and just understanding that um, talking about it helps. Talking about it helps a lot. And I think that for a lot of people who maybe do suffer from these uh, disorders and maybe those who don't, like I think a lot of people can still recognise a lot of these patterns in their own kind of day-to-day in some form. And, and I think that there's a real kind of... Um, shared experience for a lot of people and and talking about it just it just helps a lot and it helps kind of get it out and kind of you know for a lot of people myself included my eating disorder was a big secret and sharing that with people and opening up about it really kind of it lost its power as soon as I started to talk about it it kind of like it lost its power and it stopped having a bit of a hold on me you know because it was it was not this secret that I was keeping in anymore it was something that like I was sharing with other people and I was able to kind of, yeah, bring out of the darkness, so to speak. And Nick, once you started sharing it, especially within the LGBTQIA plus community, what what was their response? I mean, were people understanding? Yeah, totally. Uh, Like, I've started sharing my story over the last few years and I can can say that, like, it's been the best thing I've ever done. Just talking about it has helped me so much and also helped so many other people as well. I think especially with within our community it's it's a really common it's a really common experience in a lot of different different facets and i think as soon as we start talking about it and opening up about it people start to go oh wow i'm not alone i can actually talk about this as well and had some really great conversations with people and it's brought me a lot closer to 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 friends and and partners and and family members and it's it's been able to kind of be a real kind of thing that i can kind of champion throughout my life and um it's been such a positive experience and, uh, you know, I'm also really grateful that I've got wonderful people around me that are, that are happy to, to listen. <laughs> but uh, but that, that yeah. support is essential. You can't be talking about this into a void. People need to actually be listening to you. 
exactly exactly and yeah it's it's been honestly it's been it's been a really great experience and and i know from my experience that it can be really hard to start talking about it and it can be a really really challenging first step and i, I really acknowledge that um and i i just want to know like say that to anyone out there who is like on that kind of that current first step where you're not able to share with people yet like take your time do whatever you need to do find a safe person or a safe group of people that you that you trust or find someone like butterfly foundation and um and take that first step because it, it is it is scary but it's it's really worth it i, I can say that 100 percent. nick this has been an amazing conversation and thank you so very much nick mitchell opening up talking about his own uh, lived experience um with disordered eating with body image problems as well uh, a lovely text in saying look people just feel the pressure of body image it, it's an experience many many people have those of us born with a genetic base that tends towards weight gain that will just never conform to what society thinks we should look like no matter what we do no wonder people end up with eating disorders this text is saying i speak with 50 years experience of that the sooner society as a whole can embrace the diversity of body shape the better it's going to be the only way i cannot thank you enough the people who are coming in on the text line coming in on the calls and and having these open conversations about what this means this is the conversation hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Nick Healy is my name. We are talking about eating disorders, disordered eating, body image issues, and how they affect men in society. I heard from a few people who've been talking about their own lived experiences with it, some professionals as well. And I think one of the things I want to chat about is where we can look to make changes in terms of the images and the role models that men see and respond to. Now, uh, Jessica Sanders is a social worker and award-winning author. She wrote Be Your Own Man, a book that supports boys to redefine what it means to be male, what it means to be a man. Jessica, good morning to you. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, over this morning, the stories I've been hearing from men who've been experiencing body images, both from the people I've been chatting to and on the text line, talking about body image issues, eating disorders, it seems to me to, in many ways, be very tied up with traditional ideas of masculinity. Be strong, be fit, be big and powerful. Like, am I off base here? No, I think you're incredibly on base. Um Sammy Wolf, who wrote The Beauty Myth, actually has this great quote, and she says, the beauty myth is always actually prescribing behaviour and not appearance. And so we often get caught up in the beauty aspect of it and the ideals and the image, but in reality, these beauty ideals are very much about how a culture wants us to be and show up in the world. And so for boys, that huge pressure to be big and dominant and take up space. But girls actually get the opposite message. We're told to be smaller and take up less space. Um, so, yeah, pressures are very gendered and they're linked to gender stereotypes and behaviour. And they're pervasive. We think we've done, I guess, a, a, a good job in society of changing some of it. Maybe we have worked the edges of the conversation a little bit, but certainly when you are bombarded by the, the people you're going to see on your movie screens, on your TV, uh, on your social media feed as influencers, they're still going to adhere to many of those stereotypes. Absolutely. And we are getting there we're starting to have these conversations for example um we're getting new television shows out and books that are diverse and that are starting to challenge these ingrained and outdated narratives um but we've still got so far to go and i think social media has introduced a whole new challenge as well when it comes to representation but what i believe family is we have an opportunity when kids are young to set them up with great and healthy foundations about how they view themselves about how they view others 
um, and about how they view their bodies. And so that's why it's so important to start young when it comes to healthy representations of masculinity and of bodies, you know, true diverse representations of bodies, which is what I tried to capture in my book, Be Your Own Man. I even think sort of, you know, a few decades ago, you maybe weren't as bombarded by social media. Well, literally, obviously, you weren't bombarded by social media, but, you know, it was magazines, it was billboards. But even then, sort of, I guess... In children's literature, too often someone being overweight is a code for them being lazy or evil Mm -hmm. or a bad child. Mm -hmm. And that is something that kids are going to take on board. It's going to impact where their body image lies. Absolutely. You'll see a lot of the evil characters in children's books are in bigger bodies um, and they are, yeah, greedy, lazy, all these uh, values that we think are attributed with being a bad person, essentially. Um, And that's so harmful because we're all in different bodies and just generally, just naturally, just how we're born. And so how devastating to grow up and be in a bigger body, to have a tummy and go, oh my God, this means I'm a bad person kid i'm a bad person like those messages stay with you and they can lead to mental health issues down the track as well i think of the text that before saying unless we embrace the diversity of body shapes the better but that can go often at odds with what we can hear from health professionals you know when we hear talks about uh, obesity epidemics and you know uh, whether people are dying too early because of unhealthy eating sometimes it feels like those conversations collide awkwardly Absolutely. And those conversations have historically been and continue to be very focused on the body and what it looks like rather than the behavior. Mm. And most, I guess, uh, this is emerging, I guess, in medical professions and in nutrition as well. Um, School of Nutrition currently have a health um, at every size course, which is really exciting. It's starting to shift, but that is incorrect. Like health is determined by our behaviors. So do we move and exercise and how much and what do we put in our body? But we often get so caught up on what we look like when, it, when in reality you can't tell someone's health by looking at them generally. Um, and so it's a, it's a poor misconception and it's not really setting our kids up to actually be healthy. Um, the message around, you know, weight and I think, I'm not sure if it's been discussed yet, but the Bluey episode that recently had some controversy around it um, showed to the, the mum and dad characters mm. um, grabbing their tummy and standing on the scales and they, they were showing dissatisfaction with, oh, I'm not exercising enough. And that might be true. They might not be exercising enough and they need to exercise more. That's a healthy message. What is an unhealthy message is to link that to their weight. Um, and it was an unnecessary inclusion, really. Um, and, yeah, so I think that episode could be pretty easily uh, fixed by just taking that part out. But we often just seem to be really obsessed with weight and bodies, like what they look like rather than what we do. Well, I think the fact that that would go into a Bluey episode, even so innocently, obviously, it just says mm. how hardwired we are in society to have those conversations. Yes. I need to lose a few pounds. Yeah, it's very ingrained, it's normalised, and there was clap back against that. And mm. I think almost the majority of people said, oh, what are you worried about? That's just, you know, how things are. That's how the world is. And I say, you know, we need to be better for our kids. We shouldn't just accept that we, ha- we grow up, you know, with low self-worth or that our value is attributed to what our bodies look like. That's not, that's not good enough and things need to shift. And in some spaces they are, but it is so unconscious, this bias that we have against weight and different bodies and it's time to challenge it and unlearn it. Jessica, what role can older men in Australia have to, I guess, make the right conversations with the, the younger generations? I think it's about, you know, sometimes we think, oh, I couldn't cause a negative body image 
in my son or grandson because um, I didn't talk about their body. I just talked about mine or I just talked about other people's. And kids pick up on those messages. If you are, you know, making fun of yourself and, you know, your beer guard or, um, you know, for women often like maybe their arms or these comments, they're, they're taking that in and they're going, oh, I can't look like that. Then they'll also, you know, be making fun of me. I'll be lesser than. Um, so we have to be really careful about not just how we speak about young people's bodies, but how we speak about our own bodies and other people's bodies. Um, the best case scenario is just to not really talk about them at all. Like I grew up very tall. I'm six foot and I was this height when I was 12 years old. So you can imagine <sighs> that a lot of people spoke about my body to me. And, you know, they made comments like, whoa, you're so tall for a girl that created a negative body image and disordered eating as a result. So just think twice, I guess, before you comment on bodies, even if you think you're celebrating them, try to compliment kids on the things that they're interested in or their personalities or what makes them them. Non-appearance-based compliments are a great way to support, you know, positive um, self-worth and mental health. Um, and just, yeah, be aware. And then also the way you speak about food and exercise. Try not to vilify certain foods. Um, talk about nourishing our bodies rather than, you know, um, anything else. And also talk about moving for joy and fun. You know, we have a really strong sports culture here in Australia and that's great. It's social connection. It's moving our bodies. Those are really positive things. Those are places where we move generally not to look a certain way, but because that's what our bodies are made to do and it makes us feel good. Um, so modelling that. Uh, you know, healthy relationship to exercise is a great way to go as well. Jessica, thank you so much. Jessica Sanders, track down her book. It's called Be Your Own Man. It's helping young men kind of redefine what it means to be male or, or a man indeed. Butterfly Foundation, one three hundred double three four six seven three. Eating Disorders Victoria, one three hundred five five zero two three six. And, of course, Lifeline is 13 11 14. I want to thank everyone who's come in to have this conversation, everyone who's been opening up on the phone and on the text line. It's meant a great deal to me.